I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 78 of Talking Golf History. Today on our show, John Barba of My Golf Spy shares the rise and demise of a brand that might have gone toe-to-toe with Titleist, Penfold Golf. Penfold Golf was born into a world of a golf ball rollback, in a time where all manufacturers stood on uncertain ground. But Penfold had a solution that proved to be groundbreaking. They also became the first golf ball manufacturer to open manufacturing facilities in the United States and Europe, and it seemed their future was to be a bright one. Today we discuss how Penfold surged to the top of the golfing world and how it met its demise. You may not know much about Penfold Golf, but trust me, you want to know the story of Penfold Golf. Let's dive into my talk with John Barba right now. Welcome back to Talking Golf History, John. Well, thank you, Connor. I'm, I'm excited to be back. This is, uh, and this is about the most fun I have in my day when I get to talk to you guys and, uh, and talk golf history. So I'm psyched. Let's do it. Well, you know, our last episode, we did one on the rise and demise of Spalding Golf. And we're jumping into an interesting topic, an interesting story. It may not be top of mind for a lot of the listeners, but that doesn't mean the brand wasn't something in its day. We're jumping in the history and really the demise of Penfold Golf. So before we dive into the genesis and loss of this brand, it really could have challenged Titleist, don't you think? If, if it would have kept on its, I guess, its old school path. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, they were, they were poised. One of the things about Penfold is its uh, similarities with a Kushnet brought science into making golf balls. Albert Penfold was a real scientist like, like Philip Young. And um, they had really kind of mastered an interesting way of making golf balls that lit- that legitimately were went farther than anybody else's. And business-wise, he had things in, in, in line. And if it weren't for a major event in the middle of the century, yeah, I definitely think Penfold could have, and again, it's it's speculation. It's it's kind of a little bit of, you know, mental gamesmanship. But yeah, I, I think there's a case to be made that Penfold could be challenging if it were still going today. Could have been challenging a Kushnet for and Titleist for the role of number one ball in golf. It certainly had the path, right? Yeah. I mean, it certainly had even after, and we'll jump into those devastating developments that happened, you know, decades ago. But even through those setbacks, it still made progress, which is really amazing. I mean, if one of those things happens to you, it's devastating. If the second one happens to you, it's devastating. The third one's a killer, and it just kept rolling. Right. And it changed the course of the company. It changed what they could do. And again, it's, uh, you know, 
as things turn out, it just, you know, there, there was not another family person ready to take over the reins. Uh, you, you sell out to a major corporation, a major corporation treats it as a plaything, And then which seems just, to be a theme in a lot of our stories. Yes, yes, <laughs> indeed. Yes, indeed. Selling is not getting sold is not a death knell. Who you are sold to, however, uh, can make a major difference. Play a role in your, yeah, it makes a difference where, yeah. where you're going to go. Well, you know, before we jump into Penfold Golf, the story, let's jump in a little bit about Albert Ernest Penfold, whose story himself, I mean, had he not founded Penfold, would have been amazing. Can you walk us through Penfold's golf career in the industry and perhaps a little bit of his genius? Yeah, Albert Ernest Penfold was born in 1885. And, and, as a young man, he developed a, a keen sense of the scientific mind, and he was kind of a rubber savant, you know, which was which is interesting. And in in the late 1800s, rubber was a very important compound. Uh, this was about the time they were starting to, you know, the, the British Empire was expanding, and they were uh, laying these communication cables, telegraph cables everywhere, and rubber was a huge part of that whole process. Um, he went to work for the um, India rubber gutta percha and telegraph works company i had to look that up because that's, <laughs> that's a great name yeah <laughs> um for some reason it was it was better known as the silvertown company yeah which was famous um, for making their gutty balls right exactly well the silvertown actually the reason it was known as the silvertown company instead of the india rubber gutta percha and telegraph works company <laughs> was because it was founded by a guy named silver that was his last name and it was located in cornhill england and the neighborhood in which the factory and all the, the works were located was called the Silvertown region. So it was just a neighborhood name for the, for the company. Um, but the, the Silvertown was making everything rubber. They were making, uh, you know, heavily into telegraph rubber coatings for wires and for communication cables and things like that. And Albert kind of found a home as a young man there when he started working there. Uh, Silvertown also was into rubber. They, they eventually started making tires. As if you were in rubber, sure, you'd be making tires uh, for bicycles and then later for vehicles. They actually made battery-powered electric trucks and cars, too. Oh, wow. Which was just weird. I mean, it was Yeah, everything in rubber and out. then electric cars. Yeah, things to use the rubber. So yeah. a little vertical inter- integration. So um, they, and again, as you mentioned, in the late eight, late 1800s, you got got a percha. What are you going to do with it? Make some golf balls too. Yeah. While you're at it. So Albert got involved in making the gutta percha golf balls. Um, now the guttys back at that time, as you well know, were were they were dull gray, and the common complaint was, you know, even in the fairway they could be hard to find once they got even just a little bit dirty. And uh, the story goes that Albert was in a meeting, and someone we don't know who said if. Uh, in Albert's presence, says if if someone could figure out a way to make a gutta percha white, that person would make a fortune. Hmm. So instead Albert, of painting them white, can we make them white? Exactly, exactly. Somehow infuse the gutta with whiteness. I suppose would be the way to look at it. And um, Albert, throughout his career, Albert just had a knack of being in the right place at the right time. And being an inventor, this was a challenge to him. So yeah, let me. I, yeah, I can do that. I don't know what these other tossers are doing, but I can do that. He developed the white gutta percha, patented it, and by nineteen and that propelled him. By nineteen eleven, uh, Silvertown made him the director of uh, of golf ball development and R and D. And at that point, he was I don't think he was even thirty at that time. So he was still he was still a young man, and he was put in charge of the of of golf ball development. 
So what do we know about he was he was obviously an inventor at Silvertown and then later Dunlop. Like what do we know of his patents? Like what was he you know did, how many patents did he did he hold? I know he kept one of them but uh, yeah, he kept you know one that was really important. Yeah. I, 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 I guess the other question is like we'll get to this but how the hell did he hold that patent? I mean most of these companies have that fine line where anything you invent is ours. Right. And uh, this might have been the, one of the reasons why companies now have that policy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, back then, he, you know, a lot of the patents were in his name uh, from what I've been able to see. Even when he was working for Dunlop, he, the patents were in his name. One of the patents that he developed while with Silvertown was for a, a lattice type marking or lattice type dimples, if you will, uh, on a golf ball. Um and that was in the mid-19-teens, I would imagine, when that happened. And he was able to retain that in his name, which, again, in the, in the history of Penfold, became, uh, was a really, really important development. Um, other patents he developed that, he was, that he's really well known for happened when he was with Dunlop. One was for uh, uh, tennis balls. Dunlop was a manufacturer of tennis balls. And Penfold developed a process to manufacture tennis balls that would prevent them from going flat, which was a big problem at the time. And tennis was a huge, tennis was actually just as big as golf was for Dunlop back in that time. So, yeah, so he left Silvertown, he goes to Dunlop. Do we know anything other than the the tennis ball, his time at Dunlop? Like, how long was he there? Did he uh, have any, you know, major marks on the company? What position did he hold? (laughs) Oh, gosh, yes. Well, he again, he was uh, a position I I was not able to kind of determine exactly what his job title was, but he went to Dunlop in 1919 and went to work on golf ball development. 1921, the first golf ball, his first notable golf ball with Dunlop was released. And it's something you've probably heard of. It was called the Max Fly. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It, Albert Penfold developed the very first golf ball to carry the name Max Fly, which again, throughout history, I've got a dozen of them from Dick Sporting Good sitting right behind me, which is a very good golf ball, by the way. Um, so that was his big claim to fame with, with, with Dunlop, along with along with the tennis ball manufacturing uh, technique, those were his two big patents with uh, with Dunlop. And so, about a decade later, he decides to go it alone. And it's about the same time that the USGA starts to have a problem with the length the golf ball is flying. Yeah, and in 1931, USGA. they uh, <laughs> they wanted to roll it back. How did uh, young Albert capitalize on a rollback with this brand new company, Penfold, which you know was trying to make its mark? All right. Well, Penfold, when he started, he went out on his own in 1927 uh, and he uh, decided to start his own own company. So he started two companies. One was called Golf Ball Developments Incorporated. The other was Penfold Golf Limited. Um, and they were just one in the same. They were just uh, two different divisions. Uh, and he opened up a factory in Birmingham on Bromford Lane. Uh, the story goes he used his entire family savings. He mortgaged everything. So it was his family savings. Uh, he mortgaged the home. He took out a loan on his life insurance to come up with 5,000 pounds worth of capital to start this business and outfit a factory. Um, in fact, in 19, uh, uh, his son, Dickie Penfold, or Albert Penfold Jr., um, wrote years later that in 1929, the family was so broke that they, they, they just didn't have any money at all. He had to sell a gold sovereign to kind of fund Christmas uh, for, for the family. Um, 
the factory itself was kind of interesting, and we'll get to the to the to the to the rollback in a second. The factory itself was kind of interesting. Pretty much the entire place was built by Albert and his son by hand. They built all of the machinery, they did all of the pipe fitting, everything to get it started because again, they had no capital. Um, and by 1930, they started producing golf balls. Now, where it gets interesting is that's about the time, again, the, 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 the RNAs, particularly as far as they were concerned, was, was worried about uh, distance. I guess the pros back then, not like the problem we have now, the pros back then were just hitting the ball too bloody far. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was making some of they were worried it was going to make. We've some never of heard this complaint yeah, since. <laughs> absolutely. The rollback worked, folks. <laughs> Well, they were they were worried the ball was going too far, so they wrote a specification for you know a standard golf ball that would control distance, which is kind of what they're talking about now, right? Didn't Jack just say something a few weeks yeah, ago about it? Good timing. Um, so he wrote a specification, and Albert again is in the right place at the right time. He's at this meeting. They hand him the specification. The scientist takes a look at the specification, and he says out loud to the group oh i can make a ball that'll go farther than any of you clowns i don't know if you use the word clowns but yeah that but but he, he he proclaimed to the group i can make a ball to these specifications that will blow past you guys wow and announces it yeah, yeah absolutely it. which you know again take takes take some takes some moxie some to do yeah some moxie there's the word and he went to work doing just that as it turns out he did it um, I've got this. I want to just read it because it's a yeah, please do. quote from Golf Town Magazine. He developed the ball, and the first here it is. The the first test of uh, of the Penfold production was held on a Sunday prior to the British Open Championship on a course near St Andrews. When the selected driver hit the first Penfold designed ball, it carried far beyond the furthermost markers. Other Penfold balls gave identical results. Examination followed the demonstration, and the Penfold test ball was found to conform to the letter of the restricting specification. Ooh, wow. So he made the Pro V1 of his day. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. Do we, do, we know, uh, do we know what it was about his ball? Yeah, yeah. He, again, brilliant guy. What he did was he figured out a way to randomize the rubber strands going around the core. Um, the way he did it was, uh, instead of holding the core in a confined space and then wrapping the, the strands around it, he, he realized that if you shuffled the ball, I guess if it just popped up and down a little bit, if you shuffled the ball, the theory of randomness would, would allow that ball to take up the rubber thread in a, in a randomized pattern. So you didn't have too many strands you know, threads crossing at the same point, which would throw the ball out of balance and potentially, you know, make it less pressure sensitive, I guess. Um, typical balls today, which we talked about when we were, when we were at, uh, when we discussed Spalding, were about 1600 PSI of internal pressure. The Penfold balls were over 2000. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing, right? I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. back in its day, and it's just kind of like the mad scientist, just kind of figure out a way to, uh, take a restriction or a rollback and, you know, actually blow it out of the water. Yeah. He knew, he knew rubber and he knew math. And again, he applied serious science to this to make sure that the, uh, to make sure that his balls would, would do what he said he would. And, and every advertisement you see from the thirties, uh, it says, you know, Penfold golf further by design. 
That's fantastic. So yeah. do we know how much better it was than the average ball? I mean, are there any written accord of that? Not that I could find specifically other than it, you know, the, this particular, this particular, um, the test, yeah. uh, test, uh, in, uh, in the early thirties, when he started, uh, importing, uh, or exporting balls to the U S he, um, you know, would, would regularly go to the U S and there was another uh, article in, in golf illustrated magazine in 1934, uh, where, um, the writer says uh, uh, Penfold knows exactly to the last precise detail the reason for any ball's action in flight and usually has it figured out scientifically with a pencil and paper before the molds are even made. So again, he applied serious science to, to, to golf ball manufacturing. Oh, man, that's, uh, that's incredible. So uh, was he successful? So he has this ball that goes farther. Uh, you know, he's applying science to it. Are are penfold golf balls just flying off the shelf? It would it would it would seem so because it it uh, he's also a master promoter too, which is makes him a very unique combination of skills. Uh, within two years of of introducing these balls, he's sponsoring uh, professional golf tournaments uh, and putting up the prize money for it. So he's got, he, he's got some dollars behind him. Uh, and he's also, again, expanding into the United States. So there, there was a, there's, there's, there's a, there's a paper trail of immediate and substantial success of golf, of, of making golf balls for, for, you know, for the average golfers out there in the UK and then, and ultimately in the U S as well. So, and just like modern times, uh, his, Immediate success uh, combating the roll, ball rollback and, and against his competitors, uh, much like today, was met with a lawsuit, right? <laughs> oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> you can't be too successful in the ball-making business if you don't get sued. That's a fact. Right. Well, it, it, it turns out that, that Dunlop, he was using with the, uh, the, one of the, the first balls he made was called the T-E-E-M-E, 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 which I didn't understand it until... I looked at it and it said T me. So T me put me on a T. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. Um, and uh, that it had that lattice marking on it, that lattice dimple pattern, if you will. And Dunlop saw that and they said, Hey, that's what our balls have. And because he made balls with, uh, with when he was with Dunlop that had that pattern, they sued him because they said, Hey, that's ours. Well, as it turns out that patent that he had held on to from his Silvertown days, carried the day for him in court in 1931 uh, a british court said now we side with penfold uh and told donlop their suit was groundless unbelievable so, so hanging on to that little piece of paper proved to be very good for no me. doubt this is one of my favorite questions for you so you know when the pro v1 came out in the uh, 2000s many of us had sticker shock right at oh, yeah. the price Still of the, the price ball you know jumps up to 50 dollars, i think maybe 55 today i'm not sure exactly where it stands today Surely this wasn't the case with the ball made, you know, during the Great Depression, right? I mean, it must have been fairly cheap. P.S. I know the answer to this. <laughs> I know you do. Um, well, the LL and the LT balls were the uh, among the first he brought over to the U.S. and they sold for a dollar a piece. Oh, that sounds cheap, John. In 1932, <laughs> yes, yeah. in 1932. How's that translate? Yeah, uh, about 19 bucks a ball. A ball, folks. Nineteen bucks. Nineteen dollars of uh, during the Great Depression. During the nineteen dollars a ball. Nineteen dollars a ball. And he was still uh, successful, correct? Oh, oh, sure. Well, the people who played golf still, you know, 
in one in one respect, the people who played a lot of golf still played a lot of golf, and they still they still had had money to uh, to enjoy their their pastime even during the Great Depression. Nineteen dollars a ball. Oh my God! Nineteen dollars a ball. You didn't want to lose that. That ball better go really far, John. <laughs> I mean, maybe they need to roll back it again just so we didn't have to pay $19 a ball. Jeez, talk yeah, about inflation, folks. Sure, cut it. Yeah, you cut it in half. It's only, what, nine fifty a ball. There you right? go. There you go. And almost as round, probably, as some of them oh. that came out of the box. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so in uh, 1936, Penfold makes a bold move and attempts to corner the international golf market. Um, you mentioned this before. Going over to the United States, how how did they go about doing that? What was their bold move? Well, they in 1936 uh, they opened up a factory in Brooklyn, uh, in the Bush Terminal, to manufacture golf balls in the U.S. And I believe they became the very first manufacturer to man to build make golf balls in both the U.K. and and the U.S. So this was a huge move. Uh, it had its roots going back to 1932, and that's when he started to. Uh, export balls to the U.S. He set up a, a U.S. and North American uh, distribution and, and sales channel. Uh, the uh, head, first headquarters was in Manhattan, uh, uh, let's see, uh, 67 West 44th Street in Manhattan, not far from Bryant Park. And um, he also started uh, set up different sales offices in Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, in Canada, down in the Caribbean. To 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 set to market golf balls, and he insisted that they only be sold through golf professionals. That was something he he kept, uh, I think, throughout throughout the uh, in, into the '60s. I believe that Penfold golf balls could only be sold through golf professionals. Um, so, in the '30s, uh, in the UK, in the '30s, he's he's really taking a step in promoting um, uh, the professional golf tour. He started actual he started sponsored professional golf tournaments. Uh, throughout the UK, uh, in the US, he's building up his network and his distribution, and he's he's going back and forth a couple of times every year between the UK and the US to to promote his business. And again, being a promoter, he's he's hobnobbing with the, the golf journalists of the day and getting to know all these folks, and they're writing articles about him, and again, in Golf Illustrated and other magazines, and he's advertising pretty, pretty heavily and fairly creatively for the day, little cartoons that, that were, were attention grabbing, which you really didn't see in a lot of the advertisements of that day. And every one of them was, we hit the ball farther. We hit the ball farther. It's distance, right? Not like today. Oh, no, yeah, we don't talk about how far the ball goes. That's <laughs> right. who cares? Who cares? Exactly. It's all about precision, right? But I mean, he, he's really a, a master at this, right? I mean, he comes in and he's one, if not the first, he's one of the first folks to uh, have manufacturing in both the UK and the United States. As you mentioned, he's playing this pivotal role in changing professional golf in Europe and essentially helping to create what would become the European tour. Um, his prospects are through the roof. Right. I mean, exactly. even in the Great Depression, he's making bold moves. He has what he believes to be a superior product. He has innovation. He's smart. He's incredibly intelligent with his business dealings. The world seemed to be their oyster. Mm -hmm. And then what happened? Tragedy befell. Yeah, World War II happened. <laughs> uh, World War II changed the, the 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 fortunes of a lot of families. Obviously, uh, Penfold in particular. Now, now, as every 
pretty much every manufacturer both on both sides of the Atlantic, once it was time to to to, to gear up for the war effort, Penfold was all all on board, uh, helping to manufacture products for the war effort. Um, and he was still going back and forth uh, between the U.S. and the U.K. 1941, February 17th, 1941, he's on a, a freight, he's a passenger on a f- British freighter called the Siamese Prince. Um, about two and a half days into its journey, it's steaming through the North Atlantic, just north, it was north of Ireland, heading to Liverpool, when it was spotted by a, a, a Nazi U-boat, U-69 was the number. Uh, the U-boat tracked the freighter for several hours, and right around 9 p.m. on the night of February 17th, it shot a torpedo and hit the, hit the freighter. Uh, about a half an hour later, a second torpedo hit the freighter, sending it to the bottom, killing all on board, including Albert Ernest Penfold. Uh, so he was lost at sea. Uh, his death was not reported publicly f- until June of that year because they didn't know if he was if he had survived, if if the passengers or anybody else was taken prisoner, and he was a POW. Uh, they had to confirm that 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 in fact he 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 was killed, and that was uh, announced in June of 1941. And his son, uh, Dickie Penfold, who was about 30 at the time, uh, and who had been involved in the business uh, right along when he, since he started building the factory with his dad, he had actually been director of sales since 1933, uh, took over the company and uh, would ultimately prove to be every bit the scientist and entrepreneur that his dad was. Yeah, you you might have thought with the son taking over in tragic conditions that, you know, the company might go into a tailspin, but quite the opposite, even despite uh, the restriction on rubber in the United States and the UK. How did they survive that? Well, uh, that's that's part of the another part of the the another twist to the story. Um, obviously, they couldn't they couldn't make golf balls. Uh, using rubber for any leisure type activities was banned. It was all done, you know, put towards the war effort. So the the factory in Brooklyn basically went idle. Uh, the factory in 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 the UK in Birmingham was making rubber goods for the war effort uh, until. During the Blitz, it was bombed by the Nazis. Double whammy, yeah. Double whammy. A lot of the equipment was destroyed, so it sat idle for the rest of the war. Um, so throughout the war, you know, the war effort, you know, obviously no, no, not obviously no golf balls were being made, but nothing else was being made either. Once the war was over, Dick Benfold had a decision to make. He had machinery in the U.S., but there was still a restriction on rubber. He had no machinery in the UK, but apparently he could get rubber. What do you do? You ship the rubber to the US or do you ship the machinery to the UK? Again, being a, being a, a, a British company, it was an obvious decision to make. We, the, the, the American experiment ends. We bring all this equipment back to the UK and we start, uh, we start making golf balls in the UK again. Yeah. Go back to our roots, right? Right. Right. And, and that's exactly what happened. And they kind of picked up where they left off. Uh, again, promoting the promoting the pro game was a huge part of of um, uh, of what Penfold was all about. You know, through the 30s, they started uh, uh, various tournaments, including like the, the uh, um you know the the Penfold Round Robin series. They called, they called it the Pen. I think they called it the Penfold League. Uh, started in 1938. It was a 12-man round robin tournament, match play tournament, uh, and it had like the the the, the prize money was like five thousand pounds. It was the biggest prize money they had to play. Especially post war, absolutely. 
Exactly. So they, 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 they did that. Peter Alice or Percy Alice won the first one and uh, Sir Henry Cotton won the second. And um, after the war, um, they started up uh, their, their other their other tournaments. And, and they, they were one of the first first uh, uh, companies to promote the women's game. They had a, a, a you know, a, 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 you know, a mixed tournament, a mixed match play tournament. And then in 1951, I think it mm-hmm. was uh, yes, 51. Um, 1951, uh, Dick sponsored uh, one of the 13 original co-founders of the LPGA, Shirley Spork, to come to the UK and do a series of um, do a series of clinics for you know for women to get them into the game of golf. So again, a lot of lot lot brilliant, of promotion. right? Yeah. Just brilliant. Absolutely. And actually, it's, it's an interesting story about Shirley Spork. When she did a clinic, she played a, she did a clinic at St. Andrews and then played around. And she she was, in fact, thanks to thanks to Dick Penfold. She was the first woman ever allowed into the RNA clubhouse. I did not know that. That's uh, fascinating. And oh, it gets even better. Yeah, um, they were, you know, again, in, in, in links, golf is bump and run, right? But she actually was showing some different types of chipping and pitching techniques that we would normally play over here. And the, 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 I guess the Brits found that kind of fascinating, and they asked her to demonstrate. So how she, what she did was, quite literally, hopped up on a table in the clubhouse of the yard, no. the golf club and a ball, and started pitching in the, in the restaurant, in the clubhouse. Love it. Yep. Bold. I love Very it. Very bold. Very bold. Oh, that's fantastic! So, Dickie Penfold—he he turned. He was truly his father's son, right? I mean, he kept up the Penfold name. Uh, he was an innovator. Uh, he even had a uh, a jump into robotics when it came to golf. Jump into that a little bit. I think that's fascinating. Right. He had he had actually had two different robots. One was mounted on a trailer, and it was called the Robot Driver, and it was mobile. They drive it all over the place, and it could launch a bunch of golf balls into the air at the same time. And what it was designed to do was to show the difference in flight between different types of golf balls and different designs. You know, the American ball versus the UK ball, a damaged ball versus a pristine ball. And they do demonstrations all, all over the UK by driving this thing around and showing, you know, the the, the benefits of, of, of the Penfold golf ball. Um, at Penfold at the time also, uh, the Penfold family was involved with the Ladbrook Park Golf Course in Birmingham. And uh, both Penfolds were presidents of the club or captains of the club, they call them. And um, Penfold, Albert, the original Penfold, uh, Albert Sr. Had, had donated money to build a new pro shop there. And they set up a lab in the back of the pro shop. And that's where Dick did most of his inventing after the war. Uh, also, at that time, they developed what they call the Bromford robot uh, after Bromford Lane. And it's a, it was a, it's a it, it, you ever watch Doctor Who? It, it looked like a Dalek. Again, th- there's the sci-fi geek in me coming up. But it looks, if you look at it, it looks like a big green Dalek with a golf club. And um, that was one of the first robot testers for golf balls. And in fact, it's still there at, at Ladbrook, Par- Ladbrook Park uh, in Birmingham. It's sitting in the first tee right now. It's, it's not operational, but it's sitting there at the first tee. But it used to be behind the 18th tee, and they would have, they would, uh, they would, he would use it to test golf balls. And actually, later on, Penfold Pros would come to Ladbrook Park and try to outdrive it. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so Gary Player, Nick Faldo, and others went to Ladbrook Park to try to outdrive the Bromford robot. So did that pre- predate the Iron Byron or the first Iron Byron, do we know? 
That I don't know. Um, it's got to be close. Yeah. It's got to I mean, be 50, close. It was what, 50s? When was that? Early, probably late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah. And uh, again, he had his own little lab there. That's where he developed the Penfold Ace and uh, and other types of golf balls as well. So again, he was he was kind of a mad scientist slash entrepreneur slash promoter, again, very much like his dad. And the 50s were really, 50s and into the early 60s was really the golden age for Penfold. Well, and, and on that, on top of that is in, in the 1950s, he makes an artistic design change to his golf balls that have right. become a part of Hollywood history. And I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about, but if they don't, maybe enlighten them. Well, it's at some point in the 50s, I believe it was like 54 or 55, um, they decided to do something creative and put a playing card you know, playing card insignias on their golf ball. So, you know, hearts, clubs, diamonds, uh, you know, et cetera. It's to, to um, identify the balls instead of numbers, just to give it a little bit of pizzazz and a little bit different, different look. So um, that started in the 50s. Now, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Hollywood and Mr. Bond. Goldfinger. Um, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever read the novel? Goldfinger. I have. Yeah, I actually have yeah. the whole set of books. Oh God, it, it, that that's where it got to start. Um, Ian Fleming was um, a, a, an avid golfer. He was a nine handicap with a flat swing and a weak grip, much like James Bond. <laughs> in in gold in the novel Goldfinger, Bond is described as a nine handicap with a flat swing with a flat swing and a, and a weak grip. Um, Fleming was a member at Royal St. George's along with Sir Henry Cotton, and they developed a, a real strong friendship to the point where um, Fleming actually personally uh, dedicated uh, a copy of the first edition of Goldfinger to Sir Henry Cotton and said, you'd, you'd particularly like the uh, the pages between 92 and 123, which was the, 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 the golf match. Right. In that book, because Sir Henry Cotton was at that time uh, a staffer for Penfold. So in the book, on three separate occasions, the narrator and Bond reference playing a Penfold Hearts golf ball. Fast forward to 1964, the third, uh, the third Bond feature, Goldfinger, is being filmed. They, they, uh, they, they filmed the big golf match between Bond and Goldfinger at Stoke Park in the U.K., and we all know the final scene of that uh, of that uh, of that golf match where Bond pulls the old switcheroo, pulls out the the, the, the golf ball. Uh, here, uh, you know, here's my Penfold Hearts. You're playing a Slazenger one, right? This is a Slazenger seven. You must have played the wrong ball. <laughs> Sorry, old boy. You lose you lose the hole in the match. And that one little bit of product placement just sent Penfold sales through the roof. It was like a rocket. That's amazing that a, a little piece of Hollywood history. I mean, I, I think any golfer, I mean, I, I think you've got all these movies like Caddyshack and, and, and tremendous movies, but I don't know if there's a better scene in golf movie history better than Goldfinger. The only thing, okay. I, the only thing I'd be worried about, I suppose, is um, the durability of the ball when Oddjob then crushes it into like dust. <laughs> I'm a little worried about manufacturing there. I think that might have hurt it, but... That yeah, I, more odd job than it does. The <laughs> that's right. How did that investment? And think about it, he threw him a Slazinger. He didn't throw him. A oh, right. You're right. No, no, you're right. That, that's right. Slazinger. Good call. 
another company that we can probably dive into in the future. Um, there you go. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know how many times I'd watched Penfold, or I'm sorry, I'd watched Goldfinger and not even thought about the golf ball until I met up with, with Gavin and he pointed it out to me and I went, holy crap, that's right. I went back and watched it again and he says, yeah, Penfold Hearts. It just, it's one of those things that just doesn't click with you until it matters. And and now, I mean, I mean, I hate to say it this way, but when people realize that it's the one thing, there is a real true nostalgic, nostalgic connection with Penfold Hearts. I mean, I showed you before we had the podcast, I, I play uh, one of Gavin's golf gloves, a Penfold golf glove with the red heart as the logo. And it, it it goes back to the the strength of that brand and specifically that movie. So the investment paid off, right? Oh, Being ab- in that movie, absolutely. Penfold. I mean, for the remainder of the '60s, uh, Penfold really was was one of the top brands in golf in the UK and in Europe. Again, over here, they were still sending golf balls over, sold through professionals. They were still being advertised. In fact, they 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 actually would run a, a contest. Anybody who got a hole in one with a pen fold, they'd send them a, a, a sleeve of pen folds, which again, which hey, if, if you're talking 19 bucks a ball, that's kind of a, nice yeah, it's not bad at all. Right. <laughs> not uh, bad. But, uh, but again, they, they, at that point, they started getting more and more into the uh, professional game. Uh, Sir Henry Cotton again was still on staff. There's a video on YouTube of a, of a, on, I think it's a shell, wonderful world of golf match between gene sarazen and sir henry cotton is that the old and, course yeah on the old course. yes and very clearly you see sir henry with his penfold uh staff bag that's Which pretty cool just, like, it's kind of cool to see absolutely know? playing penfold hearts i'm loving it um yep. so the the company's doing well right under dickie's mm-hmm. supervision the company's doing well it, it we come into the early 1970s and what happens How's that? How, what what goes on? Well, again, they still have uh, the program. Gary Player. They signed Gary Player to a glove and ball contract, uh, who becomes one of their key spokesmen. Uh, in 1974, uh, Dickie's approaching 65 years of age, uh, and for whatever reason, there there appears to be no. Uh, uh, he did have children, but it, it appears none of them were were prepared to or wanted to carry on the family business. He puts he puts Penfold up for sale, and it's purchased by Colgate Palmolive. Seems like a perfect fit, and it's Absolutely. not a, and it's not as bad as what you might think. Exactly, toothpaste, dishwashing liquid, and golf. Perfect trifecta of products, right? Now explain why it worked. <laughs> well, Colgate Palmolive was actually very active in the sports world as a as a as a uh, as a sponsor. They were sponsoring auto racing. Uh, and they were getting into golf at that about that same time. Uh, Colgate Palmolive had already purchased um, the Creighton Golf Company, Craigton Golf Company, uh, which was associated with with Penfold indirectly uh, through sales reps. Uh, and they uh, also at that same time purchased Ram from the Hansburgers. So they owned Ram Golf. They owned Craigton, and. Just it worked out that they were able to purchase uh, purchase Penfold as well. So they had Ram, which is focused in the U.S., and Penfold, which was focused in on the in the U.K. and Europe. And they had big, big, big plans. 
awful lot of money promoting both brands in both the US and in uh, and in the UK. They paid big money, up to three times as much as anybody else to sign uh, pro tour players. So they had, obviously in the US, they had Floyd, Watson, um, uh, I can't remember who else. Uh, and in the UK, they signed young and up and coming stars like Nick Faldo, yeah. Ballesteros. So they were spending a lot of money. Dick uh, Dick Foster, the, uh, the 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 chief at uh, Colgate Palmolive, was a huge golf fan, so he was all over this. And uh, you know, they were spending money hand over fist. In '75, the Penfold Tournament, which had been going since the since the '30s into the early '70s, be, was rebranded the Penfold PGA Championship in the UK. Yeah, and I mean that, everything's that, going their way. Right. Absolutely. I mean, so if you look at it, you've got this this mad, but in a good way, rubber genius, right? Who designed golf balls for Silvertown and Dunlop. And then he goes it alone and makes his own brand on the heels of a USJ or RNA rollback of equipment or on the golf ball, which should have killed you. And he succeeds. Then he gets killed by the Germans. There's a worldwide shortage in rubber. His son takes over and builds a robot to test golf ball and succeeds. <laughs> he sells Penfold to a company that's best known for making toothpaste and dishwash soap, and it's still successful. Penfold cannot be killed, John. What happened? <laughs> well, it died. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like all those things should have killed it. It's it's like uh, it's like a zombie. It just keeps coming back to life. It keeps coming back to life. What what ultimately kills it? Money. It was, um, you know, Penfold, uh, Colgate Palmolive spent a boatload of cash from 75 to 80 on Ram, on, uh, on Penfold and all its other properties. They were into golf bags. Uh, Penfold actually was selling golf clubs at that time as well. Now there, there's a, there's a theory that if you, if you bought a Ram golf ball in the U S it was probably a Penfold. And if you bought Penfold clubs in the UK, they were just rebranded Rams. And sure, why not? Why wouldn't you do that? Um, but they were spending a lot of money. Uh, Arnie wins the very first Penfold PGA Championship at Royal St. George's. A few years later, Nick uh, Nick Faldo wins his first pro tournament, the, P- the PGA Championship, uh, playing a, a Penfold GX100. Uh, uh, I think it was it was clubs. It was number three with the club with the clubs. As the, as the suit on that. 79, Seve wins the U, the British Open, playing a Penfold tradition. Everything should be going, it should be coming up roses. The problem is Colgate Palmolive, uh, Dick Foster is not no longer, uh, you know, the, 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 the fair-haired boy at Colgate Palmolive. And they're looking at this as, we're spending a boatload of money here, and we're not selling any more toothpaste and dishwa- dishwashing liquid. So in 1980, they sell Ram back to the Hansberger family, uh, and they sell Penfold to uh, the Faulkner Sports Group in the UK, which I, I tried looking up the Faulkner Sports Group. Maybe you know something about them. I, I've heard of them, but I, I can't and, tell you. Yeah, I can't tell you anything off the top of my head. Yeah, and two years later, Faulkner goes into receivership. They file for bankruptcy, and then Faulkner sells Penfold back to uh, a group of Penfold managers you know, factory managers. So they own the Penfold brand through from 82 through its ultimate demise. 
Ah, so it's not really a KKR situation, is it? It's not really, Mm-mm. it's not debt in that sense. We assume when Colgate Palmolive sold it, it probably still had potential of profitability without a, a whole lot of debt service. Was is it just it just kept finding the wrong home? Yeah, I mean, you know, Faulkner. Two years later, after after purchasing Penfold, Faulkner basically goes under, uh, and who, because I can't really find out much else about it, I don't really know why, you know, or what what kind of problems led to that. And then it was sold to factory managers, and and again, I, it's hard to hard to imagine how well capitalized they could be to to keep up the keep up the the the, you know, the past reputation of of Penfold and you know sponsor tournaments and and tour pros etc. And, and actually, as it turned out, uh, on the Ladbrook Park website, they have a nice rundown of the history of Penfold's relationship with Ladbrook Park in the early '90s. It turns out that that. That Penfold had not been paying rent on their their facility at Ladbrook for ten years, so they so it just it it, it as time wore on. The other theory is Penfold never really got the hang of making the larger golf ball, the U.S. ball. They never quite mastered it after closing down the U.S. factory. And that was that posed a problem because in the early '90s that became the the rule that that was the ball that everybody used anyway. Oh, that's a great 90s. point. That is a great point. Yeah, it was a larger ball um, after 1931 in the United States, and if, yeah, if you didn't conquer that market, that's a big part of the world market. Right. You just they they never quite mastered it by the mid early to mid '90s. The Bromford Lane factory actually did shut down, and manufacturing was shifted to South Korea. And that's pretty much the the end of the story. Not much not much is known after that, until the brand is acquired uh, uh, by the group that ultimately became the group that we have today uh, in the two thousands. Yeah, and the zombie they, comes back to life. Let's walk. Yeah, walk our the folks through how Penfold exists today. How do how do you have a hat and and golf balls? How do I have these gloves? Right. Yeah. The the, the Penfold came back in the early to mid 2000s as a uh, with Bond related products, uh, you know James Bond related products, branded uh, golf balls, etc. Going you know harkening back to the Goldfinger days, and that kind of that 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 endeavor had its ups and downs. Um, it's become pretty much a lifestyle brand now it's not really a golf ball brand although they do sell golf balls that are branded uh, the penfold hearts with the with the bond theme uh but it is it is a lifestyle brand in the uk and, and in europe they are actually quite they have a quite robust offering of of really cool retro looking you know, apparel uh and you know accessories doodads towels things like that over here in the u.s it's a little more limited but 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 with big plans. Um, they've sold various types of golf balls. Now they sell the Penfold hearts. Uh, they also have, uh, and then they'll sell different types of apparel, really nice looking sweatshirts and things like oh, that. Oh, I mean, like I said, that's Navy sweatshirt with the stitched Penfold. I tried to buy one for Christmas. They were sold out. Yeah. Love it. Know, there's, the, there's the other, the worldwide supply chain issue, but yeah, they get some really nice looking stuff, you know, hats, gloves, tees, uh, Okay, I mean, of- we're not going to get off this podcast without talking about the James Bond ball marker, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> this is, just this past, I think it's October, November, they signed a deal with with uh, Eon, 
Eon Productions uh, that owns James Bond, the, the James Bond uh, franchise, to be the official provider of golf-related merchandise, you know, to the James Bond franchise. So um, the Penfold Hearts golf balls, you can buy them in a dozen with the, that have 007 on the ball and the boxes 007 related. They have tees, towels, uh, and it again, a really cool uh, uh, nice oversized cast 007 ball marker. Yeah, it's so cool. Uh, very, it very is, cool. It is, it, it's very cool. As so a golf can, lover and movie lover, I mean, it, 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 when I came across the, it, the website, I was like, this play, This is a very cool, you know, website. They have really cool branded items. You know, I didn't buy any James Bond, uh, obviously, uh, the ball marker, but the glove with the heart on it. How can you say no to that? It's just, and it's a quality glove. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I have the Sunday bag, the Penfold Sunday bag, which is a great little bag. You know, you can actually get 14 clubs in it. As I found, I took it on a trip out to Sand Valley, but the, it's a, it's a, it's a neat bag. Uh, really. You, you got one, huh? Yeah. I've, nice. Uh, it's got three, uh, three colors, green, blue, and, and the new one is maroon. Uh, but it's a, it's a nice little bag. If you want storage, it ain't got it, but it's just for carrying your clubs around on a casual, for a casual round. Um, and it's very economical that bag. Yeah. If you, if you, if you're looking at a higher end Sunday type bag, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's only a couple hundred bucks. Whereas a, you know, a, a similar type, you know, what we were talking about earlier, the McKenzie bags are like seven, 800 bucks. This is, you know, a more modestly priced one. It's not inexpensive, but it's not, uh, it's not crazy either. Well, I'm glad that somebody, I'm glad Gavin and his partner have, have uh, spent some time and money, obviously resurrecting it. You know, even if it's going to be a lifestyle brand, mm-hmm. it's good to know that you know someone's cherishing a little bit of that history. But let's let's go back to the original Penfold. Uh, you know, before we end this, like, what might have been? Yeah, well, you know the 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 the. the correlation between Penfold and a cushion, it's very, very strong. I, there's a lot of similarities between Albert Penfold and Philip Young, I think. They were both scientists and they both looked at things, I think, differently than most normal people. Um, you know, Philip Young started making golf balls with, he was a rubber guy, you know, and, and he, you know, they were making rubber goods until he, and he was an avid golfer and he came, he just realized that when he was putting, the balls weren't going straight. He says, well, why aren't they going straight? He says, well, they're, the, the, the cores are off center. He put them in an x-ray machine and said, that's why the cores were off center. So he invented a process to ensure that the cores would remain centered and the balls would be round. And then they, and they x-rayed and that's how they promoted their golf balls throughout the thirties. Uh, you know, Penfold found a way to randomize the stranding of the rubber around the core to make, to make up a, a golf ball that, you know, for lack of a better term, had a, had a lot more pop to it, a lot more internal pressure, so it would go farther. So these are two folks that kind of had the same mindset, and they solved two different problems in different ways. And it's kind of what the foundation upon which both companies were built. Um, Titleist, their owner wasn't killed in, killed at sea. Their factory didn't get bombed during the war. What are you going to yeah. do? A couple of things, a couple of things go their way. And, you know, Mm -hmm. still, I I think what I take away from the story is just the resiliency. I mean, I think if you, you look past the bombing, uh, look past the rubber embargo that causes them to go back to the UK, look past, um, you know, all those things. And it goes to Dickie and Dickie does an amazing job. Uh, 
And then you just have some random events that happen after, you know, the, the founder and his son, you know, retire that set apart, you know, the difference between Titleist and, and Penfold. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah. it fell into the wrong hands. I mean, there's no, you know, happy or, or way to make that. It just, it, had it been in better hands, we might know Penfold like we know Callaway and Titleist today. Sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, 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 the Siamese prince takes a, a different route, okay? Um, the bombs miss. What are we talking about today? Something completely different, perhaps. Yeah, it's amazing. But it, then it again, is. I mean, you, you got to be impressed with the resiliency to endure all of those major setbacks and keep going for decades, you know, right. until, you know, its final demise. Right. And again, it, 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 it was... I did. I did. I got to interview Nick Faldo about the, his time with Penfold, and um, you know, he did tell me that something was very interesting. The ball that he played was. He said it wasn't a very good ball. <laughs> I said, really? Wait a minute. Let's let's bring that back. What do you mean it wasn't a very good ball? He says, they weren't round. I said, what do you mean they weren't round? He says, well, you know, I played it because they paid me, and I won with it. Uh, I said, but back then. Most golf balls weren't round. Titleist was the only one that was making anything with any consistency. He said he, he went to the Bromford Lane factory, and he had one of the guys says, go fetch me any dozen golf balls. So he brought back a dozen golf balls, and he had a ring gauge. Yeah, Titleist the old ring, ring gauge, yeah. Right, and he, he said, watch this, and he kept trying to pass balls. He said, like 10 out of 12 balls wouldn't go through the gate. Wow. And he said, that was not uncommon back then which really puts a lot of the scoring records and things back in those days really into perspective if you think about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, Al Geiberger on your previous one shot a shot a um, you know, shot 59. A, yeah. 59 on a course that probably wasn't anywhere close as manicured to, to as nicely manicured as they are now with equipment ill suited for the task, uh, greens that probably weren't as pure. <laughs> right. And in a ball that might not have been round. Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable, isn't it? When you really truly think about it like that, I and to think these pros, I, I don't know how far back those rings went, but the fact that like Hogan had those rings, and you know what I mean, like Nicholas oh, yeah. had those rings, like it, you know, it was paramount to them, and and because they were professionals, they had the ability to say, "I'm going to use this ball, but not this one because it's not round." The rest right. of us are just using what we get. Uh, uh Faldo had another story about playing a practice round at the open at St. Andrews with, uh, with, with Sir Henry Cotton. And they'd both gotten a bunch of balls from, from, from Dunlop. And he, he was playing the practice round with, with, with Cotton. And whenever Cotton would hit a straight shot, he goes, Oh, that's a good ball. That one's going to go in the tournament. And he put it in the bag and he wouldn't play it anymore for the practice round because he knew that one was, that one was a good ball. And he said, and Faldo said, that was just the way it was. That was common. That was common. And you, you think about it, a, a ball slightly out of round like that, and we've seen it today with cores that aren't perfectly. I was going to say that my golf spy has has, right. has you know dug into that, right? Think about a think about a twenty foot putt, you know, with a ball that's slightly out of round and you don't have it lined up. That's a that's the difference between left edge and missing it, you know, two cups to the left. Yeah, it's incredible. All of my balls seem to be oblong because they don't fall yeah. from twenty feet. So I, I've, I've got. <laughs> I've got that dead right shot down perfect. <laughs> That's right. Every every time I miss, you know, off the fairway, I'm just going to say, ah, it's, it's got to be the ball. It's not my, it's it's not my it's perfect swing. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I mean, I really enjoyed this dive into Penfold. I know we're going to do some new uh, episodes here in the future, diving into brands that have disappeared from the limelight. But this one was a really unique one. And I think it's probably a story that a lot of folks that are listening today probably aren't even aware of, Penfold. Yeah. Again, I, until a couple of years ago, I it just never clicked with me that Penfold was a had that kind of a history in in, in our game. And it was a it was a fascinating to, it's fascinating to learn that. I mean, once I found it, I started pulling a thread and just kept pulling it until until I ran out of thread just to find out what 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 happened and where what the what the arc of that company was like. And it, it was an interesting story. And again, I'm glad I'm glad to see that the that uh, that Gavin and Bill are making a comeback with it. I agree. And, you know, I think of it much like Spalding. So, you know, the younger generation looking at Spalding that we did that show a couple episodes ago. Um, they they don't remember Spalding as you know the clubs of Bobby Jones or Dwight D Eisenhower. Um, they don't remember the Crow Flight being a, a quality brand and Spalding being the top of the the food chain. And I, and I think there's going to be a lot of people here that are listening. Some that recognize Penfold from the United States, but there's probably going to be a lot of people in the UK saying, "Gosh, I used to love that ball," you know. And it's you know I, I think it's great that we can get on this show. And talk about the history of these brands and, you know, the what ifs and the what happened. The brand that couldn't be killed, Penfold, was killed and resurrected as a lifestyle brand. So good for Gavin and him. Yeah, it was interesting. And we wrote a, a, I wrote a blog on the history of, of Penfold. And as you said, so many of the comments were from people who played, remembered, who had fond memories of playing the Penfold ball years ago. And one of the, one of the commenters was... Dick Penfold's grandson. No way. Way. Wow. He said, I'm so happy to see this. I, his grandfather he died before he was born or, or else when he was very, very young. And he really didn't know much about the history of his family in the game of golf. And he said he was going to visit his father, who was very elderly at the time, very elderly. He says, I'm gonna, I want to, want him to read this story about his father and his grand, his grandfather. And it was that just that brought it full circle. A hundred percent made it personal, which was really cool. No, it's a, it's amazing, you know, doing this show, and I'm sure writing your articles, the unusual way that you connect with people or perhaps touch people. And I'll tell you what. I have my when I'm having my own inner dialogues right now. Since listening to the Guy Berger podcast, I'm talking to Kochi. Yeah, Kochi, right? How right. cool of a how cool of a moment was that? And my, my favorite part is he kept t- like downplaying, you know, the the psychology of the sport. Like, you know, everyone's got so, you know they're, they're people telling them what to think. And I was like, well, you kind of had that. Like, you didn't have a person, but you were talking to Kochi on your shoulder, and he was like, yeah. I never thought of it that way. And I was like, it's really cool that you're deferring that anxious moment to somebody else who doesn't exist there and use it to your benefit. I just, it's fun. I get to do these things. We get to do these things. And uh, a lot of fun comes out of it, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. We just got to figure out what's the next one. Is it McGregor? I don't know. What do you, what's McGregor, next? What do you think? McGregor's an awfully good one. Um, boy, oh boy. Yeah, that would be that would be the best one, I think. All right. We're going to do McGregor There's next. A long story to tell there. All right. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thank you, Connor. This is usually the part of the show where I give you my outro. But instead, I thought I would leave you with this short scene from one of my favorite James Bond movies, Goldfinger. 
Down in five. I have to sink this to half the game, right? You win, Goldfinger. <laughs> it seems I'm too good for you. Oh. You play a Slicinger one, don't you? Yes, why? Well, this is a Slicinger seven. Here's my Penfold Hearts. Well, you must have played the wrong ball somewhere on the 18th fairway. We are playing strict rules, so I'm afraid you lose the hole and the match. Yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.